What's up, everyone, and welcome to Through the Veil, episode number 25. So today's episode, we have Asha Caravelli, and she is one of the main facilitators at a Ibogaine treatment facility. So for those that aren't familiar with Ibogaine, we go super deep into it in this episode, but a brief overview, Ibogaine is a psychedelic plant compound originally from Gabon in Africa. And it has been used for many, many years to treat um, different disorders. But just recently, it's really coming to light that the real thing that Ibogaine can do especially well is help people with addiction and especially opiate addictions. So it's a really, really interesting compound. And it's a very, very needed piece in the arsenal against the opiate epidemic that we are experiencing. I hope you enjoy this episode. I will give a quick caveat. There was a few few things we didn't get to touch on in the episode, which were mainly the exclusions for someone seeking Ibogaine care. So just so people who are listening know, there are a few exclusions that mean that you cannot take Ibogaine. And I'm just going to read off a list here and let you pull from them if any of them apply to you. So if you have a history of blood clots, that doesn't work cancer, uh, chronic fainting, diabetes that's uncontrolled, emphysema, epilepsy, Crohn's disease or irritable bowel syndrome, uh, gastric ulcers, heart disease, heart murmurs or arrhythmias, uh, obesity, unmedicated high blood pressure, kidney disease, liver disease including hepatitis, if you're pregnant you can't go do ibogaine and serious psychiatric disorders or a stroke it's just a quick overview it's not a exhaustive list of every single thing that doesn't work with ibogaine but that should just give you a quick idea that if you do find a facility um, that is not working with asha there are places that are less and more strict about what they exclude and you really want to be careful because it is one of the most intense physically taxing psychedelics so those are the important caveats i really hope you enjoy this episode if you do as always sharing it out with a friend giving us a five-star review on itunes and leaving a written review on itunes are the best ways to support the show and if you can please consider heading over to my website www.throughtheveil.co on there you can find all of the podcasts you can find my blog you can find different coaching resources as well as a free guided meditation if that is your jam well without any further ado let's go ahead and jump right in to the episode Asha, welcome to the podcast and thank you for being on. If you can quickly just give yourself a brief intro and talk to people a little bit about who you are, what you do, and kind of a little bit of what you're about. Okay. Good morning, Alex. Thanks for having me. Um, My name is Asha Caravelli and I'm currently living in Mexico. I've been living in Mexico for the last 10 and a half years. I own and operate an Ibogaine clinic with my ex-husband, Rocky Caravelli. Our clinic is Awakening in the Dream. And we have websites awakeninginthedream.com and awakeninginthedreamgroup.com. I uh, was born in California, raised in Marin County, north of sort of a poor kid in a rich county. Grew up there, met Rocky when I was 18. We got married when I was 20, had my first daughter when I was 21, 
and my second son when I was 22. And um, long story short, um, Rocky and my marriage dissolved because he had a, um, a life-threatening um, chemical dependency mm. and had been um, in and out of rehab and in and out of um, treatment centers for very many years. Anyways, I met Rocky when I was 18. We were married until I was, we, I was 25. And then we parted ways because of his addictions. A great number of years went by. And then one day he called me and he said, I'm going to go get treated. I'm going to Mexico to go get treated with um, this medicine called Ibogaine. And I didn't think it was very cool. I was pretty upset. I thought, I told him you're crazy. Like this has been um, the level of crazy I, even I didn't expect from him. Right. You're just going um, to do drugs to cure your drugs. You can't I think that's how people think about it. Drugs. Yeah. Um, and I had never really heard of or worked with any kind of plant medicines intentionally. You know, I had done some um, other consciousness altering plants and or chemicals in my lifetime. But um, uh, I didn't know anything about Ibogaine. Anyways, Rock did end up going to Mexico and was treated with Ibogaine for a chemical dependency and it was a successful treatment um, in terms of a successful detox and then um, life-altering experience in ways that continue to reveal themselves. So he had the treatment. I spoke to him just a couple of days after the treatment and although I knew nothing about this medicine, what I did know was that I heard his voice for the first time in years, like uh, um, a voice that I hadn't heard in a long time, a hymn that had been submerged underneath that addiction for so long. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't know exactly what I was encountering, but I knew that I was encountering something, that something big had happened. Um, and then Rocky spent the next year in Mexico training at that clinic where he was treated and he was working with clients post-treatment in their recuperation phases and um, took our children for the first time. They were in the early years, well, late years of middle school um, and they went to a parochial school in the hills of Rosarito Beach mm -hmm. and lived with their dad for the first time in either of their lives. And, um, and then when that came to an end, Rock came back up to where we were in the US and um, very, very inspired and moved by his experience with the medicine and his desire to help other people. Um, he went around to the methadone clinics in that area and the meetings in that area and the drug counselors in that area and everybody just gave him a cold shoulder. They mm -hmm. didn't want to hear about it, sort of as I had. And then there was a, a sort of subculture. Um, even then, this was like 15 years ago. November will be 15 years. Um, a subculture of people who were deeply interested in not only what had happened to him, but what the implications of that could be for other people dealing with substance abuse. Mm. 
So he did a number of recordings and interviews and underground treatments, kind of basement treatments in Portland. He did that for about two years. And during that time, he had two additional experiences with the medicine. One, his first one he calls his physical detox. Second mm. one he calls his emotional, mental emotional detox. And the third one he was given his mission. Mm. And essentially, Iboga told him, um, I need a home. If you're gonna do this, I, I need certain things. There are certain elements that have to be present. And in a, a processing and therapy group that Rocky was in, uh, led by Paul Levy, who's an amazing author, if you've ever read Paul Levy, um, also has a group, several groups in Portland that he calls Awaken in the Dream, and they're wonderful process mm -hmm. groups. So with the help and support and continued processing of that group, Rocky put together the Dream House and came down with a staff of people who were also in that same group with Paul Levy, and he opened the awakening in the dream house and at the middle end of the second year he started calling me and saying please can you come work for me like we need help like this is bigger than i ever thought and, um, our children were just getting to the age of well our daughter she she finished high school early um, and then our son had one more year. So at the end of his senior year, he graduated and I packed my stuff and went to Mexico mm -hmm. and left my two 18 and 19 year old, mine and Rocky's, our kids together. Um, they lived together and I went to Mexico and started working at the dream house. Mm -hmm. And that was 11 years ago in September for me. So over this period of time, um, my life has developed in ways that I not I never would have imagined. You know, I just I I came from a very different background, and yet somehow plant medicines have um, permeated their way into my way of being. Mm. Love that! It's such a beautiful story, and I think it's stories like that it's funny that rocky goes back <laughs> tells people like hey there's this thing that'll fix drug addiction essentially and people are like no no we don't want to hear it but there's so many stories like that where we get <laughs> you can call it a calling you can call it it reaching its tendrils across the <laughs> spiritual divide into us whatever you want to refer to it as but we sort of get this pull to hear of these plant medicines and to go give them a try. And for those that are brave enough as you were to go give it a try, it's like, oh, there's something here. <laughs> like <laughs> this is something different from anything I've experienced previous to this. I didn't even speak about my first experience with Ibogaine, which did happen in the, um, well, it happened in Mexico, but it was, um, during a time when I was living in the U.S. and I had brought the kids down to where Rocky was living in Sayulita and I took them out of school and brought them down for a month. We drove from Oregon to Sayulita over a five-day road trip and mm. at the end of that uh, I'd have to back up even further. Yeah. So 
our our children were like they had lost their father he was they loved him they adored their father but they he was lost and um his the serious years of his addiction came at a time when they were younger and even previously even younger so he'd been a drug user their whole lives but um, when they started getting to that age where they knew something was up, <laughs> like, um, their questions about it got more intelligent, their noticings about the situation got more intelligent, and kind of the nature of my um, divorce with Rocky was that it was, it was a mutual understanding that his life was going in a direction that our lives weren't going. Mm. And um, out of love and respect for ourselves and our children, like it had to, we had to go in different directions. And so it wasn't one of those knockdown, drag out divorces. Um, my life had already been shattered and I had already been shattered by that. Um, and I was kind of, had moved through, I don't know how I had this kind of wisdom at 21 years old, but 21 to 25 kind of moved through that period of time of recognizing that I was, the ratio of fear that I carried was in direct relation to how much money I had in my pocket. Mm. So if I didn't have money, I was very scared. And if I had some, any measure of financial security, I wasn't afraid. And then um, any amount of anger that I carried about our situation in terms of breaking up was hurting me. It wasn't hurting him. Hmm. And that everything that I saw on him and one particular conversation that really stuck with me was that he was also suffering, that this was not enjoyable for him. He was not stoked at his situation. Like mm -hmm. this was really bad and so that thing of like i understand people get angry when you're dealing with addiction and addict it's really a hard situation um but i found that not kicking the dog when he was down was a much better course of action and i have found that um, the medicine works in a very similar kind of way um in terms of just some tough love and compassionate urging anyways so our children got their dad back when when this first experience at detox with ibogaine happened and it really hit our daughter like she really um, her calling towards the medicine her curiosity about the medicine um, the growing understanding of the medicine as he was learning, because it was years, like these three years after his, his detox work. Um, I don't know how he got so smart. I mean, I do now, but I remember coming to him and going, where did you learn this? Like, who is this fucking intelligent man? Very informationally dense period of time, often when people first get into their, like, psychedelic journey. and emotionally, mm -hmm. like... The, the learning curve went really steep and it didn't plateau for a long time. And so that was permeating out into our family and it was inspiring our daughter who was saying, 
Um, and as we were learning about Bwiti and about the uses of this medicine in Africa and about the initiatory aspects of the medicine, the rite of passage in particular from a child to an adult, mm -hmm. that ceremony was one that my daughter really wanted. She, she asked for it from, she was just had turned 14, I think, when her dad was detoxed and asked for it for three years. And the traditional age in Gabon for this rite of passage is 17. Mm -hmm. And so she'd ask her dad, he'd say, no, you're not ready. No, yeah. you're not ready. She'd ask again, no, you're not ready. And this went on for these three years. And then mm -hmm. after her 17th birthday, she wrote him a letter and she gave him all the reasons that she felt she was ready. Mm -hmm. and she said, you are. And so she turned 17 in September and in October, her father initiated her, gave mm -hmm. her this rite of passage with Iboga. And I still hadn't taken medicine yet. And although I knew something was happening, there's only so much that you can know right. before the medicine is in your body. So, and I was scared of it, honestly, pretty mm -hmm. scared. Um, and my 17 year old daughter sort of showed me the way. And so she had her experience in October and then mine was the following February. I told you I took the kids to Mexico and, and received medicine for the first time while I was there. And then left our son in Mexico, drove our daughter back to California, left her with her grandparents. And I went home and began my first integration. Yeah, it's so like, I, I, I think about this often that there are a few different paths that seem to lead people to the medicine. And I think the initiatory aspect is one that I often, I often even leave out in my own mind, but it's kind of like, there's one very clear path and that's the path of like the addict or the like, what else do I have to lose? I need to try something that can change my life. And that's sort of like one path in which people access these medicines. And it's, it's a path of surrender where they've maybe tried everything else and they're just like, nothing else is working. I need something. Otherwise I'm just going to keep hitting this rock bottom. And then there's the path of what I call, what I would probably phrase perhaps your path as, which is like the, everything's mostly okay, but you're aware that there might be more. And a lot of times I find like people have a lot of fear or a lot of, apprehension going in through that path because there's like when things are ostensibly like mostly okay on the outside like everything's going pretty good there's like this internal fear of like what if i go into the medicine that shows me some shit that i don't necessarily want to deal with there can be this kind of apprehension it's just so interesting that people kind of find themselves in that position before they go into the experience mm -hmm. of like oh, what if there's something wrong under the surface that i haven't been looking at Oh, Alex, like we could go into, I mean, if you want to talk about fears around Iboga, we could start there because um, certainly I have my own experience and then um, many experiences of other people and their fears and the evolution of the way even you talk to somebody about the things that they're afraid of in relation to Iboga. Mm. Like, yeah, let's, let's take two steps back really quick and talk about, just because I'm sure there's 
a small portion of my audience going, what is Iboga? Okay. <laughs> so maybe let's go like basic definition first and let's, and let's dive into like, what are some of the common fears people experience before they go in? Okay. Let's go to West Central Africa. There's a coastal nation called Gabon, Cameroon, right on the edge there. And in that equatorial region, there grows a shrub called the Tabernacle Iboga shrub. Roughly speaking, it's about five by five, low and wide, and has, um, I should have brought pictures for you, um, but has um, long thin stems, green leaves, and a tiny little white and pink pinwheel flower. Mm -hmm. It also makes a small tear, teardrop shaped yellow fruit. Inside the fruit are seeds that you can plant to make more ibogas. But iboga, underneath the ground, the roots come down and then spread out. And at least what I've heard is that the lower root system is a mirror of the above ground system so that you're looking at, you know, the line of terrain and it's mm -hmm. supposed to look the same on the top and the bottom. And underneath the roots that grow into the ground, there are layers to the material that come up to that root. There's a layer of root bark on the outside, an inner root bark, and then the, the root itself, the wood itself. So if you take off the outer layer of that root bark and you, you scrape off the inner layer of root bark, you could chop it up, mm -hmm. eat it raw, eat it dried, eat it with plantains, eat it with honey, something to help it go down. But when you ingest this inner root bark of this shrub in West Central Africa, it is highly psychoactive and produces a waking dreamlike journey where you are wide awake and also in a experiencing dreamlike scenarios of visions. And it is said to be the strongest medicine on the planet, I, I know it's the strongest one I've ever taken um, in certain aspects. But this, so this wood has been eaten by the, um, the jungle people of Gabon for long, long time um, in ceremonial use for connecting with your ancestors, rites of passage, um, uh, they use it to enhance um, uh, hunting, and to deal with the maladies that the tribe might, um, not might, will encounter. Mm. I love that just like <laughs> the metaphor of the way the plant grows is stunning to me of this mm. mirror image of as above, so below, sort as of. It's like, and I, I love, so I've heard this before and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but I've, I've heard ayahuasca framed as sort of the grandmother or the mother medicine and iboga sort of framed as the grandfather or father medicine. And it's ironic to me that they're, iboga is the below and ayahuasca is the above as the, the vine that grows above ground. And they sort of have that parallel in that way as well. It kind of stands out to me as a beautiful. I, I would, yeah, it, I've never um, drank an ayahuasca. So it's a little difficult for me to say, um, but I certainly have um, received many stories, many of our clients um, yeah. 
you know, this was not their first journey that they've taken for some, for many it was. Um, and so, yes, people have spoken about that. Um, my experiences with DMT, because I know DMT is mm. in the ayahuasca, my experiences of DMT are more feminine than my experiences with Ibogaine. Right. But it's such a... <laughs> um, it's such a broad term to use, yeah, masculine, grand, grandmother, grandfather. Um, and once they're strange to me, because I didn't, I never knew my grandparents. So mm -hmm. I have no idea if that was my grandfather. Um, hmm, God bless him. Right. <laughs> yeah, tough guy. So what are some of the common fears people come into the experience with? Like maybe even what were you feeling leading up to your first experience? What do you see sort of as my fears were not My fears were not mental. Hmm. My, my fe I was suffering. I was in a, I had been in a, a dark depression for a number of years. And hmm. so for all the sort of tarred and feathered feeling of being depressed, um, fears of my mind were not one of them. I was afraid of my body. I was afraid of what was going to happen. I was afraid of vomiting. I was afraid mm -hmm. of uh, loss of control. I was afraid of how strong it would be. Um, I was afraid I was going to do something that embarrassed myself. Like those were the things that I was afraid of. Mm. Yeah, I think those are super common fears that I hear reflected back to me a lot of just like, what if I do something embarrassing? What if I throw up? What if I purge? And it's like, what if I shit my pants? Right. You know? it's like, it's like people are really, that's the kind of stuff. And um, what I could do, what I tell people is if you were having a baby, you'd be afraid of those things happening, right. you know, but once it starts, you won't, it won't matter. <laughs> it's think about it once it starts. <laughs> once it's, yeah, yeah, it's not. And it turned out to be just that way. I mean, it was in spite of my many fears, all the things that I was afraid of happened. Mm -hmm. They all did. I vomited, I embarrassed myself, I, all the things happened. And I was just held with love, like none of it. Who's gonna come in and I don't know. I mean, it's not a um, kick the dog while he's down kind of community, you know? it's. It's not that kind of a movement, I think, because everybody has been kicked so many times. Yeah, it's, so, sort of, it's like those surface ego concerns that we all have as we're in our normal waking life of how will I look to others? I want to look, I want to be perceived a certain way. And when we're in these medicine spaces, the spaces that are held well, there's this agreement that everyone has in that space like hey we're all honoring that we're here to do the deep work whatever that entails and in doing that deep work we're not it's not a place of judgment you know we've all been broken down in those moments and oftentimes those most broken down moments are the moments where we have the most beautiful revelations that come through to us particularly because somebody doesn't kick you somebody right. loves you at your weakest <laughs> You know, it's a really powerful time to say to somebody, not say anything, be there with them. Like that's what I've discovered over time is, you know, the early years I was all jazzed up on, you know, being a therapist, using all the shit I'd learned and helping other people and God, bad mistakes. Um, and I'm sorry to any of my clients that I've projected any of that onto, 
um, you, I've learned over time. Um, well, first of all, they're not here to see me. Right. <laughs> and people can come and they can call me. I tell them you can call me anytime. Spend your time with the medicine. Um, and some people really need to talk their way in. Does that make sense? Like you give them medicine and it's about an hour before they feel it. And so there's a little, you know, thumb tapping, finger tapping time. Right. Of like, oh, I think something. I think I feel something. Yeah, I feel something. And, you know, I know what it, what it looks like when you are certainly under Iboga's um, influence. And yeah, I mean, I, I know what it looks like. They don't know. And so you mm -hmm. just help them until, I don't know, I, I think of it like, take them to the door and you turn right. them over and you wait at the door until they come back. I love that metaphor. It, it, it's something I find really, I think in common amongst all of the medicine people I've worked with in my life, that the really great ones have this sort of keen sense that they're just there to create the safe arena in which someone can do their own healing with the medicine. They're not there to be the magical healer that, cause that's like, <laughs> that's what the ego wants to tell you is like, Oh, I'm going to do the healing because I'm important. And it's like, no, just give people the tools, give them the safe place, give them the listening ear to go through and heal themselves because it's within us all. And it's a more empowering mindset anyways, like to know that, you can heal yourself with these tools as an adjunct, that's empowering. It's like, oh, that's within me. That's good. Rocky taught me when I came to Mexico that, and this is such a cool way to look at it, that we as providers are characters in your dream, that mm -hmm. you dreamed us up to play a role. I know how to play a lot of roles. Certainly I've been cast into that mom role. Oh my God, a hundred million times. Um, because I have that kind of nature. So people are like, oh, you're safe to be my mom. You take care of me, you bring me soup, all that kind of stuff. Um, and even that cast that aside, if that's not, I don't know, you lose yourself in there sometimes. But the point being that we, I've learned to be more neutral and allow people to, to cast onto me what is needed for them at that time. And the less I engage in it, the more I understand that's just happening, the more I can just play that role and then step back out without feeling like I got my guts kicked in. Yeah. Something really profound I heard at one point too, and I can't remember where I heard it, but it really, really stuck with me. And it was the idea that if if you give someone the solution to their problem, like you tell them, hey, here's what you're doing wrong and you need to do this instead, you've robbed them of the experience of having their own victory when they overcome their problem. So it's like, if you give someone the solution to the problem, if you try to like tell them the five things that they're doing wrong and they need to do this instead, then even if they succeed with your solution, they know that it wasn't their own victory. They know that it was only with your help that they were able to do that. So then they're not even standing on their own two legs in the first place. And if they fail, even worse, because then they can blame someone like, hey, Alex told me <laughs> this is what I need to do and it didn't work. So I just love the, love the idea of sort of being the hollow bone, being that empty container to just allow them to bring on 
what they need to bring on to you and then just holding that space and then allowing them to express is really beautiful sentiment and easier in the hours when somebody's under the influence of medicine does that make sense like mm. that the, those that day and a half two days two and a half days sometimes three mm. um, what happens during that time is unique and exclusive right you're just seeing the shrapnel of that coming back into the waking world but that's just a pure experience that you're being with somebody in and so it's easy to forgive whatever happens there as mine was forgiven mm. does that make sense like i can't mm. give anybody anything that i didn't experience and um, i am i'm have been i am now have always been an experience seeker and provider like i'm a, i i waited tables is what i did for my whole life i have been reading people and creating experiences um, yeah, and mom, being a mom, you read and you create an experience of peace and quiet and yeah. joy. Um, yeah, I also grew up playing team sports. I was a, I played soccer from the time I was seven until I was 40. Um, and same thing, it's an experience of teamwork, working with Ibogaine. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about the method of action. So it it is, as far as I know, the longest acting psychedelic compound, um, which is really interesting for a bunch of reasons. I think one of the one of the reasons people find ayahuasca, for example, more effective than just like straight DMT is because it has a longer window of action. So they get more time to sort of process because really these spaces, you know, my experience with DMT personally is like you blast off so fast and it's so foreign that it's really, really difficult to come back with like concrete lessons. And ayahuasca gave me a more lengthy playground of time in which to like work through things and go like, well, what about this? Oh, well, that's because of this. <gasps> oh, <laughs> so I imagine Iboga is somewhat the same way where it's like because that method, that window of action is so long people have a lot of time to really like chew things over so what's some of what you've seen in that space and like how do people are you tripping like 36 hours straight or is it like sort of peaks and valleys what's kind of the experience like as someone goes through that first of all there's no two experiences that are the same sort of like having babies you're going to labor and delivery um, but no two people will share the same story. Same thing has happened at a different stage every time. So it's a broad question. Um, and it's it, like easier to break it down first into um, smaller bites and then into smaller nibbles. Uh, I take the full 36 hours, I first break it down into three 12 hour stages. Um, we have to back up because I stopped. I didn't explain the difference between Ibogaine and Iboga. And then right. we're going to cue me. We'll go back into Perfect. this. So Iboga is the root bark that comes from the tree, the shrub in Africa. Mm -hmm. Sorry that we didn't get to this. This root bark contains a spectrum of alkaloids. A number I've heard 12, I've heard 22. I'm not really sure, but a spectrum of alkaloids of which Ibogaine is the primary alkaloid and makes up about one third of the alkaloid spectrum. So that's ibogaine. 
present in the aboga root bark. Then you'll hear of a medicine called PTA. That's the next step down in purity. Um, uh, ibogaine hydrochloride is in a purity of like 93 to 99%. Um, PTA is this same ibogaine primary alkaloid plus the presence of small presence of the other alkaloids in the spectrum. Okay, so about 85% Massimenos for PTA in terms of ibogaine purity, and then about 15% of the presence of the other alkaloids. Then the next medicine that you'll hear of quite often is TA or total alkaloid, and that is all of the alkaloids present in the root bark extracted away from the inert wood material. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I say if iboga is the orange, TA is the juice, and ibogaine is the vitamin C. Mm, gotcha. That's be that makes so sense. Okay, so working with, um, I, I am not as experienced with root bark. I don't work with iboga all that often. It's not so easy to get mm -hmm. Iboga, quality Iboga over here. Um, and because my training is, uh, I'm exposed to and um, educated with Bwiti, but I am not a master, nor have I ever been trained in Bwiti. So I don't practice Bwiti, um, which is sort of what Bwiti says to us anyways. In Africa, they say, don't take our traditions and bring them to your yard. Right. Take our idea and create it in your own yard. Hmm. And so that's what we've done with it, is we've worked at it with this um, ceremonial, semi-bweedy fusion with the West and mm -hmm. many other modes of ceremony and recovery. So it's this big fusion thing, but I can't identify myself as being bweedy because I was never tra trained in bweedy. Yeah. Um, nor could I provide it, that's just not, okay. Well, Which people... I think as a, as, as a side note, it's super important, I find, for people in the West to have a, they need an access point. Because if something is culturally so foreign, they don't know how to access it. So having some of this blending of both tradition, but also bringing in some Western flavor to it really helps people who are in the West actually get into it and feel safe in that arena. Because they have some like, okay, I've got some idea about what this is. Well, and it's also easier to integrate into your regular life because if you make this switch from like being a you know, Western person and all of a sudden you're like African weedy, like people don't understand <laughs> that. They don't know how to receive it from you. Uh -huh. And so Iboga being a medicine about receptivity, like I don't, again, I don't really understand sometimes, Alex, what medicine people are talking about when they're talking about Ibogaine. Because people talk about taking Ibogaine and they talk about doing Ibogaine, but they don't talk as much about, at least what I was immediately shown is, this is a medicine you receive. You don't reach out and grab this medicine. You turn humbly with your head down, mm -hmm. receive this. And there's so much information. Like I love the analogy of taking a thimble before a waterfall. There's so much information that if anyone thinks you're going to 
do this and get that. It doesn't work that way. It just, it doesn't work that way. Um, turn yourself over, prepare yourself, spill some shit out, um, and you'll have some space to, to receive what the medicine can bring for you. But even then, nobody's going to get it all <laughs> on the first try or the fifth, you know. Um, yeah, it, it, I think we find that with all, with all medicines that surrender is the best path. And it's okay to have intentions. Like, it's okay to go into an experience with some conception of like, I would like to learn about why it is that I keep sabotaging myself but then to hold on to those very loosely, I find to be the most effective personally. Like, okay, here are my intentions now. As soon as I'm in the experience, cool. If that's if we don't even look at those at all because the medicine is a different plan for me, amazing. We'll go in that direction, just surrendering that reverent experience of just like, okay, this is something bigger than me. I'm okay with surrendering to it. I'm going to allow this journey to go where it needs to go. And I'm just going to trust that it's going to yield fruit for me in the end. How'd you learn that? Practice. <laughs> okay, so it didn't start that way. No, first, I mean, the first couple of times, I remember my first couple of psilocybin journeys were very much like, I need to get some answers and like that sort of like <laughs> tight grip that you have on the experience <laughs> of like, yeah. I'm gonna strangle out what I need to know. And then just like very quickly you realize, okay, that's, a, that's a recipe to have what a air quotes bad trip is, is like, there's no quicker way to that than trying to control the uncontrollable experience. So quickly you realize, oh, I better just surrender to this and things will go a lot better. <laughs> so were you taught that? Did somebody cue you to that or was that total trial and error? I think it was just trial and error. I mean, I'd heard... I'd probably heard somewhere the idea of like surrender, but I think there's a certain, there's an intellectual disconnect that happens where until you really have the experience of surrender, you don't know it. You have to embody that feeling. It's not just surrender like, oh, I surrender to the experience. It's like, no, I'm willing to go wherever this needs to go and we'll just see where it takes me. So taking that beautiful thought and jumping it back to the medicine, um, what I would say is that this idea of surrender is very frightening for people. And I've seen people come up against that fear and like the dragons behind you. It's just, you know that there's going to be an impact when these two forces come to each other. And so I try to explain, you know, you can only, you can talk to people about Iboga and they're willing to, to hear you and they're grateful for information. Um, but then it is when it comes in, into you, when you're in that experience in that moment and you're getting it, um, it's the particular nature of the way Iboga embodies you embodying yourself, like such a powerful body experience. Yeah. So I know that many people are really concerned with what's going to happen in their mind and are they going to have their nose rubbed in, their terribleness, you right. know? Really, are they going to just get whacked with the proverbial newspaper on the nose? Um, and then when they get into it, because you, you try to tell them, like, 
I understand that you have these, you know, we could talk about this, have conversation around these fears, but when you get in there, it's going to be, it's going to be in your body. Like yeah. you're going to be thrumming. You'll be there. It's, uh, there's nothing else that I have ever taken or received that's ever affected my body in this way. Like when they talk about uh, the ataxia, the gravity of ibogaine, Reboga. Mm -hmm. um, so being a, a root, it has a nature to root you. Um, and once you are physically down, um, the surrender is not a difficult thing to happen. It's organic within the medicine. And that's what yeah. I have found is that the medicine attends to all of these things um my daughter god bless her she's worked with iboga a number of times she's 30 now so 17 for her first experience 17 for my son's first experience but she's continued to work with the medicine and she had an experience where iboga told her about all the different plants cocaine ayahuasca uh, mushrooms peyote uh, uh, what did I, I'm going to forget the other one, salvia, all of these. But it basically, Iboga took her through a, um, an index of these other plants and gave them, just like you and I have a split screen here, gave her a split screen of mm. pros and cons for every plant. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you're going to get this, it, it offers this, and this is its cost. So right. kind of a cost benefit sheet for every drug. And in between each one would come back and say, and so I learned. Mm -hmm. And what it was leading up to at the end was that Iboga held revealing itself to humanity until it watched all of the other plants reveal themselves and their imperfections. And it fixed the imperfections in itself before it came forward. So that all the things that are needed within the medicine are within the medicine. Mm. So, I mean, <laughs> um, I've seen it. I mean, people talk about afterwards when they're looking back with their um, their hindsight vision about the perfectness of it mm. and the magicness of it and the amazingness of it. But in the moments of it, um, mm, 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 hard, yeah, hard, enduring. Mm. At least through the first six hours. Yeah. So I can jump back then. <laughs> I keep, sorry, back and forth. It's okay, it's perfect. Breaking the medicine down into three, 36 hours into three 12-hour stages. So first 12 hours is very strong. And the second 12 hours, medium strength. And the third 12 hours, low strength, lower. This is all relative. And so what I, um, what I say to people is in the first period of time, let Iboga work. You won't be able to anyways. So what happens is as the medicine becomes more and more active at the onset, take the medicine, it's capsule, powdered, pure Ibogaine or PTA or TA in the capsule measured in milligrams per kilo of body weight. And dosing in itself is an hour long or two hour long conversation. Um, but as a general rule, a small dose is given and then a larger dose that puts you into the experience. Mm. 
Um, if it's detox, there's many other factors involved in the way you're dosing, and we'd have to take that as its own subject. But the medicine, as it's getting stronger, what I say is it's like an airplane. It's going to gain speed. It's going to gain altitude. It's going to reach cruising speed, hmm. and then it's going to slow down, and then you're going to land, and then you're going to taxi. Like it's you're going to be there, whatever. You're going to fly to the other side of the world and right. back <laughs> by the time this thing is done. Yeah. Um, but once it's really going, so your mind starts to move really quickly. What I say is it's like a mental defrag, like it spills out all of your thoughts and then sifts them and deletes obsolete information, recategorizes and refiles and puts it back away again. Mm -hmm. But in the first 12 hours, it's all the spill, it's all the sorting. Right. So what's happening is it's thought after thought after thought after thought. You can't stop it. They're just, mm -hmm. some of them are looping around to be the same thought to the point of beyond madness. Yep. And then in the second 12 hours, you, you like I've always felt the transition very clearly from the first stage to the second stage. Uh, same, again, like an airplane. You're in the air and you're coming to your destination. You can feel when the airplane slows down in the air. You know that feeling? Mm -hmm. So you feel that in your body mm -hmm. and the medicine and you go. <gasps> and then you, you go into this long drift of um, in the first 12 hours, the dreams are boom, 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 really. They're hammering, they're hard, they're syncopated with the the music, they're driving, there's force behind them, flashes, things are moving so quickly. And then the second 12 hours, it slows down to be more of a, a lilting drift. You have um, dream sequences that contain a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm -hmm. So people are finding resolution rather than just having things all spilled out you're beginning to get resolution because inside of you things are following a full course starting happening and ending and so people feel that as a feeling of resolve oh something's been resolved you can you know sometimes the dreamscapes will be involved with your family or um, something that you've done a period of time in your life um, it could be anything. It could be totally nonsensical. You could be dreaming about, you know, pink elephants on, at the back of orange buses. It's like mm -hmm. it, it. Some of it is animated and nonsensical, and iboga is present within the whole experience in different ways. And people have experienced the. The deity, the presence, the, the personality. There is, there are so many different ways that he might present himself, but there is a resounding agreement that there's a presence there, and that many times that it is auditory, that it will really work through here. And if you think about the ears, come down through the vagus nerve, like things are happening in terms of um, brain stimulation cell permeability, um, uh, alkalizing in the body, detoxifying, um, 
lots of physiological things are happening while the person is journeying. And so the second 12 hours seems to be really therapeutic for people because there's some resolution and it's, it's moving at a speed that they can um, hold on to. Um, it's also the beginning where you're starting to um, refortify the body because mm -hmm. the, the energy that's burned in those first 12 hours of tripping um, I don't know the caloric value. I don't know exactly what it is, but what I know is that people are empty of all of their sources of energy after this. And so right away you have to, for the body to function well um, and relieve the risk factors, you need to start uh, refortifying the body. And so certain things, you know, Iboga loves certain things. <laughs> there are certain types of foods at certain timings and, um, fluids and certain types of electrolytes and other mm, enhancers that can be used along um, at certain points with the medicine mm. on the other talk um, as they move through this second 12 hours. So we always have begun our sessions at night. So the first 12 hours is in the night. The first 12 hours in the night, second 12 hours in the day, third mm. 12 hours in the night to try to keep help a person maintain some circadian rhythm. Yeah. Um, and so by about 24 hours, usually um, a person has at the very least been able to get up and use the bathroom. You know, they'll need some help um, walking and things and get a little bit of nutrition, certainly some fluids into them. Um, and then you hope for some sleep that night. Mm -hmm. And sometimes people will, and sometimes, most times they will not because Iboga is such a strong stimulant. Um, you try to remind people, when they go, I can't sleep, I can't sleep. Try to remind them like, hey, you called because you wanted to wake up out of some place that you were already <laughs> asleep in. So Iboga, like this is a literal medicine. Mm -hmm. You asked to wake up. You asked to wake right. up. So because you both can hold you hold you awake for a long period of time if that is deemed <laughs> to be what's necessary for you and that's really hard for people because you're so empty it's it's you need to sleep in many for many reasons beyond your own tiredness mm -hmm. but this last 12 hours tends to involve a lot of um, anxiousness and frustration and despair and um, sort of the the breaking of all of the things that might be lingering that you might be holding on to um, a little pushy at the end or you might just go into a deep sleep sweet sleep and wake up in the morning with a feeling like most people describe it as being reborn mm -hmm. you just wake up brand new you wake up with this yeah yeah, baby baby soft way of being. <laughs> baby soft way of being. There's this, uh, I don't know if you've read Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero with a Thousand Faces, but the idea of the hero's journey just stands out to me in everything you just said of this. It's almost as if you need to go into the deep, dark depths and have everything be broken apart and almost experience like death. Like it's really what it is, is death of the ego but it's, it feels like death 
to the ego, which is the consciousness creating part of yourself that kind of like projects into the world. And as you go through that piece of death, you can only, only through that and going into the deep, dark cavern, are you able to come out the other side reborn as who you're supposed to be? Because it almost, it has to do like an excavation of your old ideas, your old habits, who you used to be. It has to dig up all that crap, throw it up against the wall and go like, cool. All right, pour a new foundation, <laughs> one that actually will work, and then we can move forward. So it's... And, and it's invaluable to have that type of experience without the way of being. You know, that's how you were. You just, it's, it's, uh, it's all progression and it's all a mystery. I don't know, you know, I don't know these things. What I do know is how to help a person receive medicine so that they can find that journey for themselves mm -hmm. and how to provide the support necessary in certain areas so that they don't stumble too much on the integration. Just takes time, you know, and I, I find that um people would love for it to have done everything overnight and it didn't <laughs> like you now right. you're just, now you're starting again mm -hmm. um, which is not something you say to people prior like you just some people you just know they need medicine as quickly as possible and yeah. other people need just a lot of time before you before their world gets it's like a little bit better yeah, let's talk a little bit about integration, just because I think it's such an important and underrepresented topic in general. Because I do, I do find people often, not always, but often kind of leap into experiences like this as a quick bit. And this is a very Western mentality, which is sort of permeated through all of the world. But it, it starts in the West, I think, of this, like, I want to take something and then I want to be better. And that's not what it is exactly so what's kind of some of the integration tools you work with people to use to help them take this experience which i'm sure can feel so massive and it can feel a little bit disorienting of just like what what just happened and how do they take that and how do they bring that into their normal life and how do they move forward after a big experience so currently um, well, currently we're not giving medicine to anyone because nobody can get on a plane and come right. to us. But yeah. well, when the time comes, and so for the last few years, we have um, an integration coach who works with our clients. Um, it's a better idea to designate a space that is a discipline of integration so that you can do some intense work and then bring it out into the other 23 hours of the day or 22 or whatever. Um, for me personally, because people are usually, as a general rule, with me, with us for some time, uh, generally around a week prior to the experience and around a week afterwards. And so the integration that I see is very early integration. Mm -hmm. And I, I allow that to happen in a more organic kind of way that's supported by lots of other plants. Plants that you eat, plants that you smoke, plants that you bathe in, plants that you rub on your skin. Um, and my advice is, um, is much more physical. I tell people four things. Eat, good nutrition, good hydration, good rest, good exercise. That's my early integration table, the legs of that table. 
um, because I, what I've always believed is that if it's not in your body, if you don't bring it down into your body first, the reuptake of information to your head doesn't work well. And yeah. if you don't recognize your own body's stability, your mind, you, how do you know your own mind's stability? Yeah. So that's, again, body experience, bring it down into the body, let the body recuperate. Um, in addiction, I say, leave the fucking addiction alone. Leave it alone for right. a minute. You came here hot, your family's hot, everybody, this is inflamed and has been for years. It can wait a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Just let it sit for a couple of weeks and bring your body down. Such, such sage advice. I, I remember vividly, I saw one of my friends, we went into ayahuasca and he he came back and the weekend after we did ayahuasca, he went out drinking with his other friends. And I was just like, what are you doing? <laughs> Don't do that. And you could see that like that lack of taking care of his body didn't allow. It's almost as if the, the messages and the teachings and the learnings he had come to didn't get a chance to take root. Mm. He kind of like, swept away all the fertile soil that had been put and then it didn't get to grow in the way that it should have because if you don't take care of your body first it really it just take it overwhelmingly puts you a it's not that you can't integrate if you don't take care of your body but man it makes it so much easier to integrate integrating your brain which is what we were doing before right. we had medicine right mm -hmm. bugging stuck up in the head all mm -hmm. the time um yeah yeah, I had a thought and I'm going to see if I can pull it back up um, just regarding. Okay, so integration. Um, I began as a worldwide community has kind of been catching up to itself. Mm -hmm. it's, it's always been uh, a cutting edge field. Does that make sense? Like still a lot of people don't know about it. Um, uh, providers provide in so many different kinds of ways and so many different kinds of styles. Um, but there are now people who their services are integration services for, for Ibogaine. There are meetings that you can attend um, where it's a safe space to talk about your experience with the medicine. And that's one of, I think, the most natural integration ways with Iboga is to have other people to talk to about it yeah. um, rather than, you know, going and talking to your mom. Maybe she mm -hmm. can listen. I don't know. But um, people who have been through it, because it's sort of like you become fluent in a language overnight. So if I was to speak to somebody about the way the medicine felt in my body um, with somebody who has had medicine in theirs, they'll know it. They'll know it. They'll feel it. It's right away. We are part of a whatever part of a club. We've we've experienced that. So that's super valuable in the same way that it is not really valuable to be. Uh, well, it can be. Who am I to say? But be alone with that integration. Right. Um, out being outside, um, it helps a lot. Being away from technology. Um, and then the ongoing integration. So the way I was trained was sort of at um, degrees of intensity of experience. So a person who receives medicine in this range of milligrams per kilo, 
they could expect that the integration might last this many months. Mm -hmm. People who were treated in this many milligrams per kilo, you could expect that that integration is going to last eight months, mm -hmm. 12 months, that kind of thing. Um, and that's sort of based on some um, teachings that Rocky received from a, a Buidi healer. So in Mexico, uh, a man named Mugenda came and worked with Rocky for about six months. And Mugenda had never really worked with Ibogaine and Rocky had never really worked with Iboga. And so these two gentlemen had a period of time where there was some synergy of exchange of information and mm -hmm. experience between these two medicines. I don't know where I was going with that. Yeah, that's awesome. I, I, I like the idea too. I think you raised a good point that I think applies to all psychedelics is when people, I see this a lot, I should say, for example, people come home from a big earth shaking experience. And it, if they don't have anyone to talk to about it, or even worse, if they have people to talk to about it, who are going to give a lot of judgment and not hold that space, it's such an isolating feeling. And I think even more perhaps dangerous than the isolation is the feeling is the dismissal of the experience for what it was. And I see this when people like go home and like you said, they tell their mom or their dad and their mom or dad goes, you did what? You went and did drugs in Mexico? What's wrong with you? And then they start to question their experience and go like, wait a second, did I do something wrong? So those external reference points of having other people who have experienced the same medicine to reflect back, like, cause it's not, I find for myself, integration is not an all up and up roller coaster it's all over the place it's some days are amazing and some days it's just like holy crap i'm really struggling right now but if you don't have other people to share that with it can feel so much like maybe i did it wrong <laughs> maybe it didn't work for me maybe i'm messed up in a unique way in which other people aren't and having that community around you to express to to go i'm really struggling today and then have someone else someone else speaks up and goes, yeah, two weeks ago, I was feeling just like that. But then I pushed through and now I'm feeling great. It's like, right. oh. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's so interesting because over the years, what I've done to, to help clients is somebody will call me um, seeking Ibogaine and I will put them in contact with people who have just received it. Okay, so you want to talk to somebody who's a month away or six mm -hmm. months away or a year away from the medicine? You want to talk to a man or a woman? Like the people who have had their experiences with us, it's a general question for me to ask. Like, can I, would you be willing to talk to somebody else about this? Mm -hmm. And so, our, you know, our clients understand we do that and they're so glad to. They're so, to feel that they could contribute to somebody else's um, being able to receive medicine. So there is a, uh, a tribal aspect, again, kind of going back to what my daughter said, Iboga is like, I watched and I refined. And so this tribe building that happens, um, it's interesting. I was just in an online meeting the other night with a client from the first year that I was in Mexico. I haven't seen or spoken to him in a number of years. It's so great to see him there. And he was just saying that... Um, there's nothing that he's, it's been a long time since he's been able to talk about the medicine um, and that there's nothing that replaces that. Mm -hmm. 
So when we were in the, the Awakening in the Dream House, we moved, that was in San Pancho, Mexico, and we moved from there three years ago. So for 10 years in San Pancho. And that little town, Rocky came there first, and then two, two other uh, providers were invited down and ended up staying. So this small town was pretty saturated with three Ibogaine clinics all at that point um, treating people who, people used to stay with us for two weeks. They'd stay at the dream house itself for seven days, which was their treatment week. And then they would go to our integration house and stay there for seven days, it was just two blocks away. And um, so they would have a place to be together. We would treat three people at a time. So it was kind of like, we called them litters of kittens and they would go through their treatment and their integration together. So there was always that kind of um, familial organic integration happening. And as the years went by in San Pancho and people would come down and they'd stay with us. And then at the end of their time with us, they'd feel like they couldn't even go home yet. So they'd rent a place, you know, in town and they'd stay longer. <clears throat> and that accumulated over the years to the point where we had maybe, I don't know, 75 people all either at some stage of preparing for medicine, taking medicine or, uh, you know, integrating long-term from medicine. Um, so it was sort of this organic living rat park. And the people who got to be involved in that, there were some real benefits to having this environment, this community of people together. Other times it was just like a firestorm. Yeah, I think independent of any medicine, that sort of connection to community is something, it's one of the main ailments of our current society. I see it all the time people who are just so starved for deep human connection in their area like where are the people who i know and love that i can spend time communicating with and connecting with and i think especially during the whole coronavirus pandemic going on people are now really identifying like oh that deep connection around a tribe of people i love and trust is one of the primary human drives and movers that we just don't acknowledge often. Mm, I don't know that we have a lot of tribalism in the U.S. I, I don't think of my friends as my tribe. My friends are the people that I love that I spend time with. My tribe is who I survive with, I work through mm. life with. We work together to create a life for ourselves. You know, each person using their own strengths and helping each other through our weaknesses. But my, my tribe is not my buddies, you know, my girlfriends that I go on vacation with. I gotta get dirty with my tribe. Like, yeah. Well, it's back to the, what your daughter experienced, which was like this, this idea of a rite of passage that I think this is something I try to manufacture, like I try to plan in with my group of friends, but to go and do a difficult experience to not only go do the fun, like let's drink my ties on the beach experience, but then also like, Hey, let's go and do a tough mutter. Let's go do some difficult experience together, which will 
bond us in a way that's not just this like positive, nice, nice, fun, yeah. fun type of bonding. Yeah. Yeah, that, and, that, yeah, that's lovely, but does it really serve in moments of crisis? Exactly. And it's such a deeper connection you forge because, I mean, it can be through psychedelic experiences. It can be through just doing something physically difficult. It could be through fasting. There's so many different ways to get to the same concept, but in doing it, you... I think at the core of it, you start to really trust the people around you because you see who they really are and you get a true measure of them. Oh, cool. You're in this with me. All right. Beautiful. You're someone I can rely on and you can rely on me. And that's like a deep feeling that I think is a lot of people are missing. They don't know. And I don't know how to put it back in. You know, <laughs> there are sometimes like I've, I've said to people, like, I can't give you medicine. I can't give you medicine because what are you going to do afterwards? You know, I can't give your family member, you want me to treat your homeless alcoholic brother? Where's he going to go afterwards? You're going to put this guy back on the street afterwards and like open him up to a perception of humanity that isn't present in your daily life and then snatch it away again? Like, like no, just don't. No. Yeah. That's another thing is I never felt... Well, I did in the beginning. I felt obligated. If you called and asked me for Ibogaine, I felt obligated to get it to you, you know, to provide this experience for you. Now I'm, no. I don't, that you can, what I tell people is you can get Ibogaine. Like somebody's going to give you, they'll be hot to give you their Ibogaine. But if you want me to give it to you, you've got to convince me. Absolutely. It is, I call it the, internally, I call it like the healer's dilemma. And that's the idea that you, you sometimes have, perhaps there's one person who is just like you could spend your whole life trying to help that one person and maybe you'd be able to help them but in the time it took you to spend your whole life helping that one person you could have helped 2000 other people who were present and willing to be helped it's difficult to grapple with but i think it is super important like it's there are people who are just not in circumstances that are going to prove it almost can even make it worse because a rebound effect like if you if you huddle yourself around the bonfire of awareness and self-awareness, and then you try to go back to being homeless and living on the street, you're going to have to do twice as much of the negative behavior as you were doing before to dull that back down. Yeah. It's a difficult thing, right? The personal healing. I mean, I do see that that's happening, that there's a grassroots rising up of people wanting to heal and shed the the things that are holding them back from that um, and i see that that's a kind of syphysis sort of journey you know environment makes a, a a big difference and so for me in mexico like it's sweet we can it's kind of lawless and easy down here i don't know the laws i can't understand the language anyways mm -hmm. so i don't even know if i'm breaking the law yeah. and then other people it's yeah slipped away <laughs> my thought slipped away it's all good well we're getting close to the end here so i think one thing i like to ask people before at the end of the podcast always is what's the thing right now that is really lighting your fire like what's the thing that you're waking up every morning and you're just excited about um whatever that is for you I've, I'm trying to tap down my excitement. So mm. I'll try to answer this question without yeah. getting excited. It's okay. <laughs> um, I, I have personal interests 
and they are threads that kind of weave a, a tapestry together. Um, I study mythology. I study mysticism. I study yoga. Um, those things coming together for me personally, that's what I'm finding. And I want to, I've been at that point in my personal discipline, my spiritual path, my spiritual practice of getting out of the, the mindset that it's for me, that I'm going to get anything out of this and turning myself over to the service of it. So what is my yoga asking of me? What are my studies asking of me? Not what am I, how much smarter am I going to get out of this? Mm. Um, and one of the things that I'm finding is that uh, trying to use some equanimity and be in the middle and not listen too much to what's happening in my head. So I get up every day and I do it because that's the thing I promised myself that I would do. Um, and I do it whether I'm whining inside or excited and passionate and celebrating. So I have all the experiences and um, I have been doing this for a few years and I don't talk about it much. I just quietly do it as a, um, a foundation of stability in my personal life and as an act of love to the people in my family and that I come across with because I'm a better person. Now, the way that information organizes between my mind and body, and we spoke about this earlier, I have a, it's never gone away. Um, I have a different mechanism for exchange of information between the mind and body based on my work with the medicine. Um, and that's, that's really sportive. Yeah. Yeah, it's really supportive. So where I am now, like if I stop to think about 15 years ago, the, the state of my life and the state of my being, my personal being, um, were at the lowest that they had ever been. And I'm, I'm aging now, I'm in my 50s, and that's a, a whole experience that I didn't anticipate. Um, Oh, another thing <laughs> I'm studying is I'm, I'm in, a, in a training to receive a death doula certificate mm -hmm. and I'm studying compassionate accompaniment and that's based on this, um, this work with Iboga yeah. uh, because I'm with people for long periods of time, lots and lots and lots of hours to a very um, all over the place type of experience. I'm... I'm I have that capacity to do this now. And so I am, as I have always been, I guess if I was excited about something, it's service. Like I'm just built of service. I am um, genuinely from my heart, the kind of person who hopes for the best for you. And I am training and learning um, and practicing over the years to allow the worst thing to happen for you if that's what's necessary. Which is often the most difficult piece of the of helping is well, yeah. Well, I'm over it. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm over the idea that it's my fault if something happens to you. Exactly. It's like, yeah. hey, I need to and let I, you go through this to give you the gift of seeing that this pain happened for you and not rob you. Of it. 
exactly. you have the experience. It's difficult. It's probably one of the most difficult. It's something I struggle with all the time. Like, okay, I just got to let you experience this. This is yours. If I take away parts of it, you're not going to get what you need anyways. Then you're going to have to go through it again. So then I'm really an asshole. So yeah, all because I couldn't manage my myself, my exactly. own shadow. So now I'll do the shadow work so that you can suffer and be better, feel better as a person inside. I'll be here holding space whenever you need it afterwards. But yeah. enjoy the um, journey. I did want to say, Alex, that there's no way to cover, because um, we haven't even scratched the surface of the mm -hmm. medicine. Yeah. Um, and I would certainly come back and talk with you more. I know that we had mm -hmm. talked about you and Rocky speaking as well. But we really, there, it's such an, a tremendously huge subject, and it kind of depends on who you're talking to about it. Um, but if anyone wants to hear more about it, we can talk about Iboga another time. Yeah, we definitely we'll do a part two and we'll do a part one with Rocky and we'll kind of yeah, like it's go just, over some it, things. Yeah, it's just so hard to catch it all. You, oh, yeah. you can't. Yeah, but I think this is a beautiful intro for people and I think people will get a lot out of this of just a basic understanding of like what it is and just some of the human elements that go into play with Iboga and Nibogain that I think are really, even as you said, like it's just now cresting into the public consciousness, it seems. Like it's just starting to peek its head above the dirt and people are starting to go like, oh, I've heard of that. I don't know much about it, but I've heard of it. And it's, it's fun for me to watch because it's really, it's transformative. And, and while it's a beautiful medicine for uh, chemical dependency, right. um, and it did, Iboga came out through the, through the addicts. Like that was the medicines, mm -hmm. Uh, decision and choice and consciousness to be revealed through through the addicts and I think that's awesome um, but it is not all that Iboga offers it is not solely a medicine for addiction nor is it a cure for addiction but it is a, a medicine for humans yeah and, and that's a yeah that's that I love, I love to think about it kind of as like you're familiar with maps here in mm -hmm. the US, the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Sciences. And they do what I would call a very smart marketing job of they chose veterans with PTSD as really like their first avenue of like, this is where we'll do our research. I kind of like to think about it as Ibogaine did itself a smart marketing job by sort of choosing the thing that's most difficult. Like, how do you get someone out of addiction? Like, all the therapies we have for it are garbage and don't work very well. And Ibogaine's like, I got that one. Watch. Watch what I can do here. <laughs> and sort of like showed its way through that, that it's got a potency for that and there, so many other things. There's a couple of things about that itself. So Iboga and natural laws and the way in which Iboga just breaks natural laws hmm. or reminds you of natural laws or establishes there's a lot of lessons in, around natural law and Iboga. Um, and who better to bring up a subject of law than the laws? You know, then the, the rule breakers, then, the, and also sometimes the most physically vulnerable people. And so if they can find a way to work with um, these physical vulnerabilities with this medicine, well, they, they have, they have, I have colleagues who are um, skilled beyond mastery with um, how to give this medicine to people who have physical vulnerabilities. I don't enter into those risks any longer. 
not without a clinic and a staff and a doctor behind us. And yeah. yeah. Now it's a little, now it's more like midwifery. Now it's more like a home birth. Yeah. Love that. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for being on. Uh, one thing I like to do before the end of the podcast, first of all, actually, where can everyone find you? What's the best way to get in contact? What's the website they should go to? Um, the website, www.awakeninginthedream.com. We'll have a second website as well, www.awakeninginthedreamgroup.com. The first website is more um, informative around chemical dependencies and ibogaine. And the other website, Awakening in the Dream group website, is more for um, non-dependency, non-chemical dependency work with ibogaine. Um, uh, Mine and Rocky's uh, contact information is on there. I don't know if people give out their phone numbers on podcasts. I don't really want to. But my contact information is on the website. Um, I'm glad to speak with anyone. I'm going to tell people as I'll talk to you. I don't know if I can give you live again, um, but I could certainly help you if I can't, you know, to find someone who can. Amazing. Perfect. Well, one thing, the last thing I like to do before the end of the podcast, just take a second to honor you. So Asha, I think the thing that stood out to me through the entirety of this interview and even the conversations we had before it was just your compassion and your sort of deep commitment to stewardship, if that makes sense, like your your commitment to helping be a guide for people through what could be a really, really rocky and difficult point in their life and your commitment to continuing to do that work, not only to help them, but also to help yourself and to continue to move your understanding forward is something that's super inspiring and super important because I think people people love to see, I love to see, I should say, someone who is both committed to helping, but also committed to continuing the work for themselves. It's something that I think is so important. Yeah, I, yeah. I work for Iboga. <laughs> yeah, exactly. My job is to become sustainable so I can continue that work. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah, well, thank, thank you, you so much. Alex, thank you. And thank you for what you're doing, for opening up a space for conversations. And when we got off the phone yesterday, I was struck with, um, with your with your talking about god my mind is getting to that jumpy spot um talking about oh you were saying how people um needed to have a, a place i don't know alex whatever it is my my thought has gone away but what remains beyond the stream of train of thought is a, a gratitude for giving people the space, giving, giving voice to, oh, you said that people, there weren't very many people who had information, good information out there. Um, That was it. Thank you. I appreciate that. And it it is, it's one of the things that I hope people get out of, especially episodes like this that are so informative. It's just a better understanding that even if Ibogaine isn't for them specifically, at least they can have some of their perhaps prejudices around it shattered so that if someone else in their family needs the help of a medicine like this, they'll actually be able to go, you know, I've heard of something that I think might be helpful. So it's not even about just necessarily if the person listening is like, oh, I need to go do Ibogaine, but also the ripples that that can cause of all the people around them who may never have heard of this as an opportunity. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for being on. And...
that's it. That's it. it Thank up. you. Oh. All right. Well, that's it for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. It really was a important and impactful one for me, just really getting a better, deeper understanding of the different ways that Ibogaine works and just really sh illuminating and showing how ibogaine is a very very effective medicine that's perhaps not in the conversation as much as it should be at this point if you enjoyed this episode if you got something out of it you can find all of the links to asha and her community of ibogaine facilitators and healers in the show notes as well as all the links to my social medias and you can contact me of course through my website which is www.throughtheveil.co and as always if you enjoyed this episode i would super appreciate it it would be the best ever if you went ahead and shared this with a person you love or leave us a five-star review on itunes and write a review that really really helps spread the show helps get the word out and it helps this community grow so more people can get involved and we can continue to book cool guests like asha much love to you all i hope you have a wonderful week and i will talk to you soon